brothers and sisters, as we continue today in this series that we've been in, we've been in a journey, haven't we? We've been in a journey through the biography of Jesus as it has been written and recorded by John Mark. We call it the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to John Mark. <clears throat> and the theme for Mark's Gospel is Jesus, Son of God, suffering servant, and Savior of sinners. Today, brothers and sisters, we want to pick up with Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Have you ever been in a situation where someone under your leadership does something seemingly harmless that gets you into trouble? <laughs> oh boy, have I had that happen. <laughs> in this episode, <clears throat> something as innocuous as sitting down to eat a meal became controversial because, well, because Jesus' disciples did not observe certain Jewish traditions before they ate. And it got Jesus into trouble with the Jewish officials who were watching everything he and his disciples did or did not do. You know, when you have critics close at hand, they watch everything. They look for everything. They want to see every flaw. They want to see every stumble. They will look for everything they can find. The disciples were supposed to do a ceremonial washing of their hands before eating, which they did not, or some of them did not do. This violated a Jewish custom that was referred to as the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders, that is to say, in the Jewish community. Problem, though, is that this custom was not commanded in Scripture. It was simply a part of Jewish tradition. wasn't a command for them, Jesus' disciples, to do, which was why some of them didn't do it, and Jesus didn't scold them for it. But Jesus' critics scolded him and them for not doing so. You know, Jesus' critics were an ever-present challenge to his messianic ministry. It was as if they were always saying to Jesus, we're watching you. Have you ever had somebody say that? I'm watching you. <laughs> we're watching you because we think you're a fraud. Little did his critics realize that Jesus was no fraud, but they were a fraud. Little did they realize that Jesus is the word of God, but they were all about the words of men. Little did they realize that Jesus 
is the truth, but they were all about tradition instead of the truth. Truth versus tradition. That's what this people is about. Or this episode, rather, I should say. That's what this episode, this episode, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 and following. That's what this episode is about. The truth of God versus the traditions of men. In other words, what God's word commands versus what men do or what people do. What God's word says versus what we do. As we walk together through this episode, let us, let us see everything in terms of the truth of God versus the traditions of men. Okay? Truth versus tradition. In Mark chapter 7. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Parenthetically, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they, came from the when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. <laughs> As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, pause right there for the time. Let's just pause right there because that actually is about as far as we will get today with this episode. The crowds of the previous episodes in Mark chapter 6 were not the only people who sought an audience with Jesus. Jewish officials from the capital city of Jerusalem also came seeking Jesus but for very different reasons, as we have already mentioned. They were there to inspect and critique Jesus and his followers every move. To see if Jesus and his disciples were faithful Jews who lived up to their Jewish traditions. These Jewish officials represented at least two groups that were prominent, at least in the New Testament, prominent in first century Judaism. The Pharisees, on the one hand, and the teachers of the law, otherwise known as the scribes, 
So the Pharisees and the scribes are the two groups here gathered around Jesus. Now, the Pharisees were one of many groups in ancient Judaism who were competing for power and influence over the Jewish people. They were known to have been devout followers of Jewish religion and Jewish customs. In fact, um, early on in their early origins, they were a lay movement, if you will, of men who wanted to call the people of Israel back to faithfulness and fidelity to the Bible. And what may have started out genuine and authentic by now, um, you know, a couple hundred years or so later, uh, has become something quite different. And if you know anything about the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, then you know that Jesus has some very strong things to say about the, scribe, about the Pharisees uh, as well as the scribes. You see, these Pharisees uh, had become a well-connected political interest group among the Jews by this time. They sought to influence and control the political, legal, social, and religious practices of the Jewish community through strict adherence to Jewish traditions. Now, let me push the pause button for just a moment because I don't want us to miss what I believe is a very important connection that we see unfolding before our very eyes, a connection with the history of these Pharisees. Because it seems to me that this is very similar to what we have been observing in our time with Protestant evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christianity in America, I should say. Because what, by all accounts, in the early decades of the evangelical movement, the modern evangelical movement from about the 19, late 1940s and 50s onward, was a movement that was seemingly committed to the Bible and committed to calling people to Jesus and to the Word of God and to faithfulness and fidelity to the Bible and, and you know, to, well, to good biblically grounded morality. But now the reputation of evangelicalism and particularly white evangelicalism in America has profoundly been tarnished in the last seven or eight years, certainly within the last decade, and has been tarnished by the behavior of far too many in the political realm, calling themselves Christians, but acting like they know anything but God sometimes, putting power, apparently, ahead of. The word of God. Oh, now there are tons of people who would take issue with me on this and take fighting issue with me on this. And that's only, that would only prove my point. <laughs> instead, of, instead of humbling 
ourselves before God's mighty hand and confessing where we have gotten out of line and sinned and where we have caused the name of Christ uh, to be tarnished among the world. No, we want to fight. That's just your problem. That says it all right there. You know, Jesus did save us to fight the good fight of faith, but Jesus did not save us to beat up on people and abuse them in the name of Jesus or in the name of our religion or in the name of the Bible. That ain't what God has called anybody to do. God has called us to preach the word, but we can't make anybody believe what we believe or do what we think they ought to do or do what we very well know the Bible says people ought to be doing. All we can do is give people the truth and give it without trying to exercise power over them in some sort of a political realm, which if you succeeded in the political realm, that still won't save anybody's soul. And you were supposed to be about the gospel and the salvation of souls. Not about the subjugation of other people to what we believe. Jesus is the only one who can bring people to submission ultimately to himself. We don't have any power to do that. Nor should we act like we do. Mm. Oh, and by the way, please allow me this little footnote. The last time I checked, every square inch of this globe belonged to God, including your country. It ain't your country. You ain't going to be here but a minute. It all belongs to God. Act like it with a little humility, because a little humility will go a long way in helping people to see Jesus. Just a little humility goes a long way for God's glory. Anyway, let me. <laughs> they were well-connected political interest group among the Jews and sought to influence and control the political, legal, and social and religious practices of the Jewish community through strict adherence to Jewish tradition. Not the Bible, traditions. The teachers of the law, these scribes, also known as the scribes, taught the law of Moses at the temple in Jerusalem. The scribes were the scholars of the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 1 here says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. These two groups from Jerusalem represented the official opposition to Jesus and his messianic movement. Think about that for a moment. Don't let it swim past you too quickly. These are the people who know the Bible the most. These are the people who know everything there is to know about how the community ought to behave and function itself religious, you know, function religiously. They know everything. There isn't anything they don't know. And these scribes, well, they know the Bible far better than, they knew the Bible far better than most of us can actually conceptualize. 
They could recite from memory entire portions of scripture. And remember, in these days, there were no chapters and verses in their Bible. Yet, they represent the official opposition to Jesus and his messianic movement. Think about it. The Pharisees were last mentioned in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, when they conspired with another group known as the Herodians to assassinate Jesus. <laughs> and the scribes were last mentioned when they accused Jesus of demon possession in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. How could they miss who Jesus is and miss so badly? There is a cautionary lesson in this for all of us. They were all blind to the fact that opposing Jesus meant they were also opposing the kingdom of God. The fact that they came from Jerusalem suggests that Jesus' words and his works had already impacted all of Israelite society and that his impact was felt even in the highest echelons of Israelite leadership. As far as they were concerned, Something had to be done about Jesus. So they already conspired to assassinate him with another group of, of all people, the Herodians. Hmm. Verse 2 goes on to tell us that they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, notice the way Mark writes in his gospel, and it'll tell you that he is, very often he will mention something, especially if it has anything to do with Jewish tradition, and he'll explain it to his readers. And that's what he's doing here in verse 2, when he says, uh, they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, explanation, unwashed. In other words, some of his disciples were not practicing good Jewish religious custom. Now, listen, okay. Um, <laughs> especially considering the time that we are currently in, you really ought to wash your hands before you eat, okay? You really ought to wash out. I, <laughs> I wash my hands incessantly and they just my skin is just I constantly got to work on it because I'm always washing my hands with soap and water why because we've been living through a pandemic and a virus and the flu and RSV and God knows whatever else is floating around out there and we know that we transmit these viruses through our hands and so we know that good hand hygiene is very important so the Bible here is not saying anything against washing our hands The washing of the hands that they're talking about here doesn't have anything to do with the issue of personal hygiene and everything to do with Jewish ceremonial tradition, custom. And then in verses 3 through 4, Mark explains 
for the original Roman readers of his gospel and for us, what eating food with hands that were defiled actually means. Mark writes parenthetically, verses 3 to 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, for our purposes, yes, you should most definitely wash your dishes. <laughs> wash your dishes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but that's not what they're talking about here. That's not what Mark's talking about. No, this is ceremonial washing. It's a, it's a religious ritual that they went through. And for the modern 21st century mind, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, this stuff is, this is very foreign to us in many ways. So it would be easy for somebody who didn't know better to misunderstand this thing. You talking about washing dishes and washing hands, you know. Well, <clears throat> what he's talking about, what, and the, the backdrop to this is the issue of clean versus unclean, acceptable versus unacceptable in the presence of God. That was what was originally behind this. And that whenever you, Mark mentions about the marketplace, whenever you, a Jew, go out into uh, the world and you rub shoulders with and deal with um, non-Jewish people who are unclean, <laughs> you see, unclean, not acceptable to God. When you come back, you wash yourself. You wash off. That's some of the idea behind all of this. And it had become such a Jewish cultural and ritual custom. So Mark makes clear that this was a common custom in Jewish culture, and the tradition of the elders refers to these customs which were considered mandatory by the Pharisees and others, although they were not written in the Bible. These were traditions which were mandatory, but not found in the Bible, the traditions of the elders, I'm saying. Whatever all of this corpus of traditions were, they were not found in the Bible. The Pharisees and some of the scribes believed that the Israelite people were obligated to practice these religious customs, even though they were not commanded in the Bible. So Jewish people and culture were guided by these mandatory, man-made rules and regulations that were not written in Scripture. These human rules came to hold as much weight as the word of God in the minds of some people, in the minds of many people. Especially if they knew these traditions better than they knew the Bible. Now think about it for a moment. If, if this tradition of the elders, these man-made rules and regulations and rituals, 
are being practiced everywhere in the common culture of the people. And you see this, you grow up seeing this all the time. You hear it all the time. And you see it and you hear it more than you even know or understand what the Bible says. Then I think we can all see how people can wind up mistakenly attaching to these traditions just as much weight as they would attach to the scripture. Although they would know better, nevertheless, they still did so. Um, the closest parallel that I can bring to this, to, to today's uh, Christian church congregation, you know, uh, if you've been in church any length of time or years, you've, you know, you've heard people say, well, that's the way we've always done it. You know, um, <clears throat> and not that it was always bad or whatever, but that's the way we've always done it. And that becomes more important even than the Bible. Or your bylaws become more important than what the scripture says. That kind of thing, you see. Yeah. After Mark's brief explanatory note on Jewish traditions in verses 3 and 4, he continues the story with the Jewish officials questioning Jesus about his apparent lack of respect for and submission to the traditions of the elders in verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Who said their hands were defiled? Jesus didn't say their hands were defiled. They're saying your disciples' hands are defiled because they're not doing what the tradition of the elders tells us Jews we ought to do. Let us remember that they were doing, speaking of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were doing exactly what we should expect opponents and critics of Jesus to do. Find fault with everything about Jesus and his followers. The implicit accusation behind their critical question is that Jesus and his disciples are not faithful Jews because they do not faithfully observe the traditions of the elders. But these traditions of the elders, as we have already seen, these traditions were not the word of God. They were the words of men. They were not the truth. They were merely traditions. You see, brothers and sisters, the issue in this episode, as I said, is about truth versus tradition. And in Jesus, we don't have to do things the same way we've always done them just because we've always done them that way because somebody who by now is old or even dead said that's the way we ought to do it. <laughs> Truth versus tradition. What happens next? Well, this was how Jesus responded to their criticism in verses 6 and 7. 
The Bible says he replied. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Mm. So Jesus reacted to their criticism with the word of God from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah 29, 13. Read it for yourself. It's there. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 says this. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Isaiah 29, 13. Jesus does not mince words in his answer to the scribes and Pharisees here. He responds with the, well, with the prophetic condemnation of them by first calling out their hypocrisy, just as the prophet Isaiah had done against the ancient Israelites back in the mid-8th century B.C. What these opponents were doing against Jesus was not a new thing. God had already indicted their ancestors for some of the same spiritual rottenness. The word hypocrites here refers to people who profess what they do not practice. They say one thing, but always do something different. They do not actually live the way they claim to live. The Pharisees and the scribes and others who opposed Jesus were hypocrites. Turn to Matthew chapter 23 in your Bibles, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, I, wanna, I want you to see verses 2 through 3. And what Jesus says about these critics, these opponents of him. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 to 3, Jesus said, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. This is the definition of hypocrisy. To profess one thing and practice something entirely different, and to do so as a matter of lifestyle. That's a hypocrite for you. <laughs> now, I, I, let, me, let me say a couple of more words about Matthew chapter 23 here while we're on it. Jesus says to the people 
to his disciples and to the people. He's actually not only addressing his disciples about this in Matthew chapter 23, but he's also addressing other followers beyond just his disciples who are listening and following and listening to him. So that's what verse 1 tells us of Matthew 23. But in verse 2, then Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That is a huge statement. You might read it and not even understand what it means, think nothing about it and read on, because, of course, verse 3 is easier to understand, but verse 2 is important. They sit in Moses' seat. This is what he means by that. Without going into all the details, it's a huge statement, because here's what it means. They're the ones who teach the Bible as the word of God to the people. They're the ones who knew the scriptures. They were the ones who were able to explain the scriptures to help people understand the scriptures. They were the ones, the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, I told you, the scribes were the scholars of scripture, you see. And the Pharisees, at least back in their origins, were calling the people back to faithfulness to the Bible, to the scriptures. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says of them, sit in Moses' seat. What did Moses do? Well, among all of the many things that Moses did, uh, as the greatest leader of the Old Testament, Moses taught the people and spent 40 years teaching and leading them in the wilderness. Moses was the one who went up on Mount Sinai and came back down off of Mount Sinai with the word of God and with a face that shone brightly because he had been in the presence of God on the mountain. It was Moses who saw the back of God who passed him by while he was kept in the cleft of the rock as the Lord revealed himself to Moses, the man of God. When Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, that's a significant statement. They're the ones not only who know the scriptures, but who teach the nation the scriptures. Yet they themselves don't live by what they teach. It's a serious indictment upon them. So what does Jesus tell people to do about it? Be careful to do everything. That they, everything they tell you is right. <laughs> everything they tell you is right. They, what they're teaching, you know, when they're telling you that this is what the Bible says, this is what the scripture says, and this is what it means, they're right. They're right. Listen to what they're saying. But don't look at them as an example. You must be careful to do everything they tell you from Scripture, not about the traditions of the elders, but from Scripture. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, you know what, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. This has been the biggest problem of the church, especially the modern church. But throughout history, we have had this problem. We have had to struggle with it and play through it and deal with it over and over again. People in the church who preach one thing and practice another, from the pulpit all the way to the pew, and even whole, not only congregations, but denominations even, 
of people who call themselves Christians, who preach one thing, practice something different. The Southern Baptist Convention is known for this. The largest Protestant body in North America, if not the Western Hemisphere, second only to Catholicism, the Southern Baptist Convention, in terms of the teaching of the Bible, in terms of calling people back to faithfulness and fidelity to the Bible, the Southern Baptist Convention has done it, especially over the past 50 years, especially since the late 1970s. And yet, as Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, oh, listen to what they tell you because they got it right in terms of explaining Scripture. They just don't live by it. <clears throat> Because the same racism and white supremacy that was responsible for the founding of the convention has still continued to plague the convention to this day. And you can't love God whom you've never seen and hate somebody else who's a different race from you whom you see all the time. And a whole race of people whom you enslaved for 200 and some odd years. 250 years. And about whom the convention was started in the first place. In the years leading up to the Civil War. Oh, but, uh, you know, many have waxed eloquently about this in the SBC. And then as soon as Donald Trump comes along, half or more of them lose their minds. And all of a sudden, we wind up looking at people like, I thought I knew you. And I thought you loved me, brother. Have you been lying about what you say you believe about the Bible? Have all of you been lying? Well, not all, but far too many. Jesus intentionally exposed their hypocrisy. Their precepts were faithful, their practice was false, and their piety was phony. The Lord does not like hypocrites. God takes no pleasure in hypocrisy. Hypocrites are inauthentic and counterfeit. Does this problem still exist today? Yes, it does. As we've already mentioned, church communities can sometimes be plagued with people who are counterfeit Christians. People who profess to follow Jesus, but who actually have no genuine intention to follow him according to the teachings of Scripture. They give lip service to the Lord, but their lives expose their lying lips. They claim to love God, but they really love only themselves. These people 
honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, says the Lord. So the people developed an outward form of piety without inward submission to the word of God. They knew all the acceptable outward motions and went through the motions, but inwardly they were spiritually and morally empty and bankrupt. And as a result, the Lord also says, they worship me in vain. This is the Lord talking in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. The prophet Isaiah is giving the words coming out of God's mouth about them. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is speaking the word of God right here in these verses in Mark chapter 7. God the Son is saying the same thing that God the Father said about the people centuries and centuries earlier. They worship me in vain. Now listen, if God says about a people or about any individual, you worship me in vain, that is about the worst thing that could ever possibly be said. Think about it. They worship me in vain. They know the language and the learning. They know the words and the works. The rites and the rituals, the seasons and the sayings, as well as the songs of worship, and yet they still do not know the Lord who is able to save them from their sin. There are too many people who attend today's churches who fit this description. Too many people who are familiar with the Bible but have never repented and believed the gospel unto genuine salvation. Too many people worship in vain. Anyone who honors God with the lips must honor God with their lives. Finally, in verse 8, Jesus indicted his critics with this judgment. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. What an indictment. Human traditions cannot save human souls. Mere man-made rules cannot substitute for the word of God. The word of God is truth. The words of men are merely tradition. Truth supersedes tradition. Why? <laughs> because Romans chapter 3 verse 4 declares, let God be true and every man a liar. Truth must always overrule tradition. Where tradition overrules God's truth, there can be no true worship of God. This is why Jesus said to the woman at the well, in John 4.24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. He said that after saying to her, woman, you all don't know what you're worshiping. You don't know what you're talking about. 
I know what I'm talking about, Jesus says to her. We know what we're talking about. The day will come when it's not going to be about somebody worshiping on this mountain or that mountain is what she was talking about. No, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, what Jesus says to her is it won't be about the place you're standing and worshiping in. It's going to be all about the place and the position of your heart before God. If you're going to worship him, you must do so in spirit and in truth. In the sincerity of your heart and soul, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the truth of God's word. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. God does not consider falsehood to be worship. You can say you're worshiping God all day long. If you're worshiping God, in anything other than the truth, it's not worship in the eyes of God. If you're not worshiping in a doctrinal, doctrinally sound, biblically sound faith, then your worship is in vain. And if you call yourself worshiping God, but you are not willing to submit yourself to obedience to the word of God and practice what you proclaim, you worship in vain. Are you worshiping God in truth or pretending to worship God through tradition? Let us worship him in truth. Let us honor him with our lips and with our lives and with our hearts drawn near to him in truth. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you today for the truth and the power of your holy word. And we pray even now, Lord, that your word will accomplish your purpose in each and every soul that has heard your word today. Each and every one of us, oh God, may your word accomplish what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 55. We will accomplish your purpose and not return to you void, O God. May your word produce good fruit, much good fruit in each one of our lives, in each one of our souls, O God. Thank you for your word today. Help us to remember what we have heard. Help us to go back and listen to it again, O God. Once it is published and available online, help us, Father, to put into practice the truths that we have been taught, the truths from your holy word today. Thank you, O God, that truth overrules tradition and that the truth of God prevails and stands over the traditions of men. Thank you, O God. As we continue to worship you today in spirit and in truth, we pray for anyone who has heard the word today, who is being convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit right now to repent and believe the gospel. We pray for the salvation of the soul of the sinner. We also pray for the strengthening of the souls of the saints. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.